Welcome to Dairy Stream, brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations that fight for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. Dairy Stream focuses on issues affecting the dairy community and our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Austin. Well, today on Dairy Stream, we're going to talk about what a lot of people have been talking about, and that is the election, in particular, the Wisconsin election update. And with us is John Holyvote. He's the director of government affairs for the Dairy Business Association. And in particular, John, during this segment, I don't want to talk a little bit about the election and what it means for dairy. But first of all, let's just talk about a dairy organization like the Dairy Business Association and the role they play. I know DBA is very involved in the Wisconsin election process and endorses several candidates. Maybe we can start out by you telling us a little bit how this process works and really what criteria uh, does a candidate need to get DBA's endorsement? Well, there's a number of things that we look at, Mike. Uh, first of all, we have a candidate survey that we send out during every major election, um, and we encourage people to basically share their opinions and views with us on issues that matter to our members, issues that matter to the, the dairy and the farming community. We look at those survey results. We also look at for folks who are already involved in public service, whether they're running for a new role or, or running for the same one that they've had, we look at their voting record, bills that they might have co-authored or co-sponsored. There were bills that we either favored or in some cases, bills that we opposed. Uh, we also look for people's leadership roles. If they're a, a leader within the state assembly or state senate, that might play a role in them getting our endorsement. And finally, we look at two other factors separate from sort of their record and where they stand on the issues. We look at incumbency. Uh, we tend not to endorse people who are running against incumbents. We might, in some instances, stay out of those races and not endorse either party if we're not too keen on the incumbent. But it's pretty rare that we'll endorse against an incumbent. And we also look at electability. That's not the end-all, be-all, but we do consider, you know, what's the chance of them winning? Um, do they have a fair amount of cash on hand in their campaign? How's their campaign going? Um, because ultimately, people do remember whether you endorse them or their opponent. And uh, we want to avoid, where possible, the situation where we endorsed against someone who ultimately wins. And that's not always the case and can't always be done, but that's at least preferable. Well, a lot of interesting insights there. Thanks for kind of giving us a, a little blueprint of how the process works. Uh, I know a question a lot of people ask is, you know, just their own involvement. Like if I'm a member of DBA, is my voice really being heard? Uh, does it make a difference if my organization endorses somebody? So how important, in your opinion, is DBA support to a candidate, be it, you know, a, a verbal endorsement or a you know, printed endorsement or even financial support? I mean, how does DBA's role be, be viewed by the candidate of getting your endorsement? Well, we'll get into some of the numbers later as we discuss more things about the election. But the reality is most of these races aren't necessarily that close. So I don't have any uh, um, delusions that somehow our endorsement is going to decide a bunch of these races. It's not, but candidates still do look for it. It is helpful for them. We have people who reach out to us uh, to make sure that we're, we're doing one, make sure that, that they're being considered. They want to use it in their literature that they put out, that they want to show that they have the support of the agricultural community. And also we involve, we're involved in financial support for candidates, and that's important. Running for office is an expensive prospect for anybody, and they need financial support from those who want to see them be successful. 
So we have at DBA a program called the Direct Giver. It allows members to, to contribute to DBA and then direct those to candidates they want to support. We also have a PAC at DBA where people can give funds and we'll direct those funds based upon our priorities and those candidates who would be useful in helping us meet those goals in the coming session. What the election means for dairy, that's part of our focus on today's dairy stream. John Holyboat, uh, Director of Government Affairs for the Dairy Business Association, is our guest. And as you mentioned in your first answer, John, all but one of DBA's endorsements won the election. So really, what does this mean for the next term and DBA's relationship with these lawmakers? Does it make a difference? It does. It's really a way for us to reaffirm our relationship with these lawmakers or these candidates, particularly important when they're new lawmakers. You know, this might be our first interaction with someone who's a candidate and now has just won their first election to be in the state assembly or state senate. So it's a good way to make a, a, fir- a good positive first impression um, and to start those relationships off on a, a good and positive footing. Now, occasionally we do get it wrong. As you said, we had one race where we in- endorsed someone who did not win. I can't say that that was one of the rare instances where we kind of suspected that might be the case going in, but we had a a young man running for office who works for a cheese plant, came from a dairy farm background, his family belongs to our sister co-op, really knows our issues in and out. And at the end of the day, he was just such a strong candidate on dairy issues that even though we knew he might have an uphill battle in his race, we still endorsed him. Um, There were several others that I think at the time, it was not at all clear who was going to win those races. Um, But I am happy to say that the endorsed candidates pulled it out and did, did prevail. Speaking of happy, I'm sure uh, dairy producers, not only members of the organization, but throughout the state, uh, understand that uh, what happens in Madison certainly does impact uh, their farm. So can you kind of explain the breakdown of where we stand now in the Senate and the Assembly and what these numbers and these representatives really mean for dairy? Well, we didn't have any major shifts occur in Going into this election, we had Republicans in control of both bodies. Coming out of this election, we have Republicans in control of both bodies. Uh, The state Senate prior to the election was 18-15 in favor of the Republicans, and they picked up two more seats going to 2013. In the Assembly, they started out at 63-36, and the Republicans lost two seats, dropping to 61-38, still a pretty sizable majority. Now, things to keep in mind going forward. Well, we still have divided government. We know we have a Democratic governor and a legislature divided that's controlled by Republicans. So we're going to see some of that tension still going into this next session. We also have a budget process. That's what we do in in odd-numbered years, like the one coming up. We'll do a two-year budget process. Uh, We'll take care of how the government's going to spend their cash for the next two years. Well, what's important always in in that time is the margin in the Senate. Often, especially in recent years and recent decades, the budget passes on a straight party line vote. That being mm-hmm. the case, uh, when you have a tight margin in the state Senate or in the state assembly, but we haven't had a tight margin there for a while, really you can have one or two members of the Republican caucus in the Senate really drive certain issues on the budget because if they decide they're not going to vote for the budget for that reason, you would then lack the votes. Them getting those extra two seats, having a little more padding, it will impact how we see this budget process unfold in the coming months and ultimately probably how we see people vote on the budget. It's going to give some people who might have pause and voting for the budget more of a, a green light to do that without worrying that they're going to tank the whole process. 
so it will be interesting to see how that impacts how we spend money in the state over the course of the next two years. And again, that really is one of the biggest issues out there. Another huge issue that sort of loomed over this whole election was redistricting. The census is coming to an end, and we're going to go into a period where we try to do a legislative redistricting in the state. At the outset of the election, um, Republican leaders were certainly pushing hard to try to get a veto-proof majority going into the redistricting process. As you heard me already explain, they're mostly at similar levels to where they were, and they fell short in either body of having a veto-proof majority, and we know we have a Democratic governor. So we're going to have to see some more compromise on the redistricting maps than we would have had they been able to put forward maps and then count on their ability to override a veto from the governor. Yeah, as you said, uh, obviously, I think those are the two major things, the budget and the redistricting issues, which might have influenced people how they voted as well. Just getting back to your comments a little bit about the the breakdown and what happened. Any of this come out to you as kind of a surprise? And does it make you think there's a, a new trend or trends in the state or does it look like it's status quo? And for those of us that have just looked at it, it's gridlock that that may just be the process as we continue. I think that's probably where we're going to be even post redistricting is probably looking at a situation where Republicans still are advantaged when it comes to the legislature. Part of that is because of one trend that uh, didn't really emerge this year, but certainly was just underlined and reemphasized this election cycle, the rural urban divide. Um, mm-hmm. That divide continues to grow and expand and become more uh, pronounced. And because of the way the our state population just falls where we're at. Um, it, it seems to indicate that Republicans are well positioned to maintain majorities, in part just because of the geography and where the population's spread out, that we have sort of um, a more diffused population than, say, Minnesota, where they have a much heavier concentration in one metro area. Here we have two major metro areas, but then also a lot of other sort of regional cities that play a bigger role and can be carved up in different ways when it comes to redistricting. So a couple of elections that really highlight this point, we saw some shifts in the Milwaukee area, suburban Milwaukee in particular, when it came to votes. And so here we have an area, the, the counties around Milwaukee, the Wow counties, that are typically viewed as Republican strongholds. And, and none of those flipped or turned blue or anything like that. But the margins shrank substantially. And we had two candidates, the two candidates that lost, Republican candidates that lost in the state assembly were both from suburban Milwaukee. Uh, Al Ott from sort of the north suburbs, the Mequon area, mm-hmm. and then also Rob Hudden from Brookfield, or the near western suburbs. Now, two years prior to this, it was kind of a surprise when a legislator named Robin Vining won her seat and just barely won her seat, also in that same western suburban area, in sort of the Wauwatosa area. And she uh, was a major target again this time, but she won, and she won by eight points, so not really even that tight of a race. And meanwhile, another seat in her same Senate district, uh, she's an assembly representative, but each Senate seat is made up of three assembly districts, Rob Hudden lost his seat and lost it by less than a 1,000 votes, but still lost. So we see this shift occurring, and it sort of mirrors a national trend that I'm sure most listeners have already heard about and being discussed on online or on uh, cable news, things like that. But uh, it definitely did play a role here. 
Um, other things to take note of this election, turnout was just massive, massive in urban areas, massive in the suburbs and massive in rural Wisconsin. Um, when we thought maybe we couldn't pump out even more votes from some of those regions, uh, we were proved wrong. You know, And that's one of the interesting things, even looking at the presidential race. Turnout for Trump was massive, but turnout for Biden was just a bit more. But mm-hmm. it was a, a question of just uh, having ever more people vote um, than before. Um, and that is an interesting trend and one that will be interesting to see if it's sustained and if it isn't sustained, what impact that has on the outcomes of future, both statewide and uh, state legislative races. Also, it, it might be too early to say, and obviously this has been sort of a unique year given COVID-19, but it'll be interesting to see what the future of earlier absentee voting is going forward. And what that has, uh, what kind of impact that has on overall turnout. I think that that's was a question. The main thing is that, yeah, go ahead. I, was, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was a question I was going to ask there. Uh, was this because of COVID a once, not in a lifetime, but, you know, kind of a trend where people did vote early because of that? And that if this is gone or we do have a vaccine for the next election, we won't have quite that impact? Or do you think a lot of people said, hey, this is a, a easier process. I like to go this way. I like to have my vote committed uh, early. Do you think we're going to be trending more toward the early vo- voters? I think this is a, a something that people will want to continue doing in the future because they may have had a positive experience with it. So I think we're going to see a higher number participate in that fashion than we have in the past. Will it be at this level? No, but more people will do it. And and the question is, how does that impact turnout overall? I think that did help drive turnout this election cycle. And there's uh, a possibility that other factors also contributed, right? I think there we obviously had a presidential race. In presidential years, we normally have higher turnout. This was also a very polarizing presidential race. So we had even higher turnout than even a normal presidential year. So I'd be surprised if we see these kinds of turnout numbers in the near future again. We might see more turnout overall than general uh, going forward, and we might see more of this early absentee voting participation going forward as well. You're listening to Dairy Stream. Our guest today is John Holy Vote, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Dairy Business Association. We're giving you kind of a Wisconsin election update and some insights into the numbers and the results as well. Uh, after our break, we will talk a little bit about uh, Dairy Business Association itself and some of its priorities as we look ahead now and turn the calendar to 2021. But, John, before we do take that break, I just want you to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what you feel are two or three key t- from the November election, especially in perspective to the dairy community? Sure. Well, I think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier when we talked about turnout, rural Wisconsin showed up, showed up in a big way to vote. And that is good. Um, It shows the importance of us as a a voting block, helps us to better solidify our position as an important stakeholder in Madison. It also shows that there's you know, hopefully ag support growing in the legislature. I think we've seen in what little we know about future committee roles, future leadership roles, that some key lawmakers from rural parts of the state are now taking more of a leading role. Uh, For example, the new Senate chairman or co-chairman of the Joint Finance Committee, which writes our state budgets, is going to be Howard Markline. He takes over for Senator Alberta Darling, who did that for many years. She's from a suburban Milwaukee district. He's from a rural southwestern Wisconsin district. So that's probably an advantage for us. I think there will probably be additional people on joint finance that we'll see from rural parts of the state. So there's 
an opportunity here for maybe some rural clout to grow based upon this election. They'll also be interested to see, um, you know, we've talked about the trends and, and turnout. We've talked ultimately about uh, or alluded at least a little bit to um, Vice President Biden's narrow victory in our state. And it'll be interesting to see what that means for future statewide races. The way that Biden won is somewhat interesting. Normally, we look for uh, Democrats to run up their margins in the major metro areas. Uh, Republicans would do very well in the rural parts of the state. And then it kind of becomes like a battle a little bit over the Fox Valley area. And mm-hmm. this, you know, if you go back 10, 20 years, you look how gubernatorial races were won in Wisconsin. It was by flipping that area back and forth between the two parties, typically. Not always, but typically. Biden did not do that. He ran up huge margins and everyone showed up to vote. Um, so he just got even more votes in Dane County, even more votes in the Milwaukee in Milwaukee County, but he only flipped two counties and none of them in the Fox Valley. Door County, which had voted for Trump in 2016, voted for Biden this year, and Sauk County, just outside of Madison, that county flipped. But that was it. Southwest Wisconsin, which also you normally would see some flips there that stayed solidly Trump territory. And the Fox Valley, where the margins, his margins were not as great as they were in 2016, Trump still won those counties straight up from Fond du Lac all the way to Green Bay. So the question is, how might that impact future statewide races? We've got a, a governor's election coming up in two years. We've got a campaign for U.S. Senate, Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson's going to be up for re-election in two years. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that trend holds or doesn't hold and how it impacts those state races, which are also obviously both very important to, to dairy farmers and, and those who are concerned about dairy policy. Very good insights. It's been a pleasure thus far to talk with John Holyvold. He's the Director of Government Affairs for the Dairy Business Association. After we take our break, we'll talk about uh, what are DBA's priorities in 2021 and what are some of the opportunities that we may have on the dairy front going into next year and beyond. All that coming up as we continue on this edition of Dairy Stream. And we'll be right back with our Dairy Stream podcast after we hear from our sponsor. In the last two centuries, American farmers have created the most efficient, productive, and sustainable food production system the world has ever seen. American farmers also face a complicated web of legal, regulatory, and political pressures unlike anything their forebears would recognize. Michael Bess and Friedrich is a full-service law firm with more than 350 lawyers and technical professionals. The firm's agribusiness team has worked with farmers and related groups for decades. In addition, our lawyers grew up on farms and have experience working in various parts of the food chain. To learn more, visit michaelbess.com. Hello once again, I'm Mike Austin. You're listening to Dairy Stream, which is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and the Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. Today, our guest is John Holyvold. He's the Director of Government Affairs for the Dairy Business Association. We've been giving you kind of a Wisconsin election update. And in the first half of our podcast, uh, John did an excellent job of explaining some of the trends, why we got the results we did, what could be happening in the future and where we might be trending and why. Right now, though, we want to turn specifically to uh, the DBA. And if you can, John, uh, give us maybe some of the priorities you see for the Dairy Business Association for 2021. Well, there's some things that have been long-term priorities for us, um, and we'll see those reemerge. I mean, things like transportation funding, looking at that and trying to f- make sure that we have a sustainable way to fund our, our roads, particularly our rural roads going forward. We'll also see emphasis on 
sort of the regulatory environment, both for CAFOs and uh, smaller farms as well. Those are sort of perennial issues for us, things that we, we can never get away from and that are always priorities for us. And during that last legislative session, we did have some what we would call orphan bills, things that were sort of left over. And we're going to be looking at those um, as well. And last year, we had probably more than usual. And that was in part because of COVID. There were a whole host of bills that made it all the way through the committee process. They made it all the way through an assembly vote. But the last floor date for the state Senate was canceled because of COVID, and they never came back in to rehab that day. So there was a whole bunch of bills that sort of made it almost all the way across the, the finish line and then got cut short by that. So we'll return to some of those issues. Also knowing that COVID's probably impacted some of uh, the budget projections going forward, we're going to probably be creative about some budget neutral ideas that we might have for improving the regulatory environment for farming, doing things that we can do uh, without having to spend money that would still be useful. You can just turn the calendar to 2021 and COVID will be gone, but that's probably not realistic. And as you said, that already impacted 2020. So besides COVID, though, what do you see as the challenges, you know, for moving ahead in 2021? Well, I think some of those are still probably COVID related, but they're distinct problems themselves. For example, a, a tighter than normal or tighter than projected budget. Now, I think we were really worried about the numbers overall. And I can say that we I think everyone's been pleasantly surprised that the revenue numbers are actually have not been as impacted as negatively as we thought they might be. Um, but people are still worried and we, and we budget on a two year cycle. So they're worried about what revenue numbers will do in 18 months, what they'll do in 24 months. Um, and that's something they had to think about. So that's going to sort of loom large over the entire legislative session. And that's definitely related to COVID, even though it's distinct from it. Same time, I think divided government's going to be an ongoing theme. We saw that last time when we worked on a budget and the tension that there was between Governor Evers and the Republican uh, legislature. They had just come off of uh, Governor Walker's defeat in the election. They had lame duck bills specifically designed to address the Democrat governor coming into office. So there was a lot of tension going into that budget fight. That's different now, but now we have new tension coming out of this election, coming out of dis disagreements over how to approach COVID that I think we're going to see carry over into the budget fight. And we also have an election looming. So everything, not that this is already isn't the case, everything's already political, but everything's even more political. Um, you know, what are you going to give as a, a win for the governor? What are you going to want the other side to have as a win in their column? Um, and what impact that could have on election prospects two years out? So everything's going to be... Um, I think probably taking place in a lens of sort of how would the person run on this issue based upon how we tackle it or how we vote on it. You did talk about, you know, the, the split and you said it seems like it continues to get worse. And that's why we've added the word gridlock to our vocabulary. And it seems just to really continue to grow not only on the state, but the national level. So you know, if I'm somebody looking for opportunities uh, in 2021, I mean, do, do you see any of those or do you feel that the chasm is so large that we're just going to have difficulty having the, you know, the two parties coming together to move forward? I mean, I think there are still opportunities. I alluded to earlier that we've got some key Aggies kind of moving into power positions in the legislature. 
that's an opportunity for us on the dairy side. That's an opportunity for other farm organizations as well. Also, budget time is just a good opportunity. You know, it's an important time with the legislative calendar and it matters. I mean, it's one bill that basically has to pass, right? Um, sometimes it goes more easily than others, but they must get it done. And that provides a real opportunity to do things, especially things with fiscal impacts that matter to us, to try to make sure that they're in in the budget, that they're in the governor's version that he puts out to the legislature, that they make it into the final version, that they survive any line item vetoing that might occur after the uh, budget's been sent to the governor's desk. So, I mean, budget time by itself is a great opportunity for us to try to move some of our priorities forward. So that that will be there, and and that's a positive for us. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's there's really there is some room to navigate here. And we're lucky in agriculture, a lot of the issues that we care about are bipartisan issues. Now, we might still disagree on some of the the particulars, but in broad strokes, we have things that should um, enjoy support from people uh, from both sides of the aisle. John Holyboat is our guest, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Dairy Business Association here on Dairy Stream. And uh, before we move off this subject, you did kind of give us a priority list. You mentioned that COVID will have to be addressed. The budget will have to be addressed, which, you know, both obviously affect the dairy industry. But is there any other legislative item do you think that will be tackled early that those in dairy really should keep their ears and eyes open to? Well, those are really the primary things that they'll be working on right out of the gate. I also expect that there's going to be a desire on the part of uh, Republicans in the legislature to have a package of ideas that they can kind of come out with and hit the ground running with. That would make good political sense for them, but it's also an important thing to sort of start off strong, especially because as the legislative session sort of grinds on, things can lose momentum. So I would anticipate that some of those um, orphan bills, some other ideas that were out there from last session that just fell short um, at the end, or some things that maybe didn't even make it that far along, but they still would like to work on, we'll probably see sort of a burst of activity, but largely based on things that almost made it last time that hopefully this time will get pushed over the finish line. John, again, thanks for your candor and your insight and the good political education you've kind of given us uh, today. Just a couple of final questions before we wrap up today's podcast. And one would be just general advice. So what would you tell a a farmer or a dairy producer as we go into 2021 about what they should be doing in connecting with their lawmakers? Well, the Capitol's closed. Um, and it's been closed for a while now, and we anticipate it will remain closed for some time to come. But that doesn't mean you can't have interactions with your lawmakers. Some of the best meetings the lawmakers are always going to be on farm, in district. Some lawmakers are more comfortable doing that than others. Some farmers might be more comfortable than others in doing that. If that's an option for you, we would encourage you to participate in that. And we're happy to help facilitate that assessment that's of interest to you. Um, at the same time, Plain old, regular old constituent services is still part of these folks' jobs. So emails, calls um, to their offices, setting up virtual meetings, which almost all these people are doing now, those are all options to you as well. So just because the Capitol is closed does not mean you still can't be engaged, does not mean you should stop trying to connect with your local lawmakers and share with them priorities that are important to you, talk more about the challenges that you're facing. Those are all things they need to hear. We'll also be having a a lobbying day like we've done for the last couple of years, Dairy Day. Um, Now, the format of it, I anticipate, will probably be different because we, at least right now, are planning it as though we expect the 
capital still to be closed in the normal time frame that we would have it uh, in late winter or early spring. But we still think we can have an event that's impactful and probably through a, a virtual format. So we're going to be pursuing that. And for those who have an interest in this, in addition to doing your own outreach, please, we'd ask you to participate in that day as well. And John, just one add-on, especially for DBA members that are listening to uh, Dairy Stream. Uh, besides some of the ideas you gave of contacting their elected officials or how they can have their voice heard, what about DBA's own government affairs team? How do they get more involved or contact that group? We're very open with our, our members. We encourage everyone to reach out if they have a question or concern, something they want to have worked on. Uh, we can give concrete examples of a kernel of an idea brought to us by a member that we then had drafted into legislation and passed and signed into law. So that is a process that's available to you and something that we enjoy working on, especially directly learning more about an issue that maybe is maybe not top of mind for us, but is important to you in trying to make sure that we can have some positive impact on it. Uh, obviously, we also have a, a policy committee and a board, and we have board elections coming up in, in January. And in the new year, we'll have new folks assigned to our, our policy committee as well. If you have an interest, please reach out to us uh, and try and participate in one of those uh, avenues. The reality is our policy agenda, the things that I've alluded to a little bit earlier, they're entirely member driven. So if you all have an interest in this, in policy and working on this, and, and most of our members do to varying degrees, that's why they're members of DBA in the first place, you really can be in the driver's seat. And we want you there. We need that that feedback. We need to understand really directly from you what your priorities are, how you feel about certain issues. Because so, a lot of this is things that we aren't, aren't priorities for us, but we get hit with, right? Because they're being brought up by others and we need to know how to respond effectively. So we would just encourage people who have that interest to try to get more involved. There's lots of ways to do that. That is John Holyvote. He has been our guest. He's the Director of Government Affairs for Dairy Business Association. We thank him for his insights and his information about Election Day and what those numbers really mean. And he dissected them well for us as far as what they not only mean for 2020, but 2021 and beyond as well, and also shared some priorities and focuses for the new year and some of the uh, well, some of the activities that Dairy will be sharing and trying to voice its opinion on to make a difference in Madison. We hope that this podcast made a difference for you. I again want to thank Joanna Guza for producing this edition of Dairy Stream. As always, if you have an insight or a question you have about what Dairy Stream can do for you to maybe provide more beneficial information. We're always open to that. Otherwise, I just give you an invitation to join us for our next podcast. I am Mike Austin, and I thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, just email us, podcast at dairyforward.com.